This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Tonight we have an opportunity to honor Mr. Leo Storch, a pillar of this community and a person who has made a difference for all of Baltimore and for its entire history. With us tonight, we also have Mrs. Storch, who has carried on everything that Leo Storch began. This is my first time in Baltimore, and I've been wanting to come to Baltimore for many years because when I came to Asia Torah in 1991, there I met first Rabbi Noah Weinberg Zatzal, the Rosh Shiva of Asia Torah. And literally the hour after that, I had the amazing schluss every single day to have an hour with Rav Yaakov Weinberg Zatzal, the Rosh Shiva of Ner Yisrael. And I got to experience something that in a million years, and all of you know what I'm talking about, I got to experience something that no one will experience again. He was a statesman with a golden scale in his mouth and everything that came out of his mouth, it just, it just had to be true. Sometimes we're all wondering how to say something, but I think it's from certain people that we learn that it's not so much how you say it, but it's who you are who's saying it. It's someone who has the integrity behind that which he says that makes it, that makes it true much more than what is said. And one of those examples, which I remember sitting in my surf shorts and my t-shirt and my flip-flops, right in front of Rav Yaakov Weinberg, I got the courage to ask him a question which took some time. And it was the dumbest question. I'm a little embarrassed it was such a dumb question. But my question was, what's wrong with wearing shorts? <laughs> I regret that because I wish I had a better question for him. Now, you're about to hear the worst Kiruv answer in all of history. But because of who he was, it worked. You ready for the worst answer in all of Kiruv history? If you had any respect whatsoever. Sorry, again, self-respect. If you had any self-respect whatsoever, you would not be asking me that question. <laughs> it was like a hammer. It was just kind of... <laughs> which really proves that it's not what you say, but it's who's saying it. And, and I knew he was right. There was no argument. And everyone in the room knew he was right. Dignity. Dignity. Integrity. These are the kinds of attributes that are not for sale. Dignity and integrity is something you get from your bubbles. Oh, yeah. Something you get from your zaydis. Dignity and integrity is not something you can learn. It's a masura what it is to be a person of dignity. It's a masura what it is to be a person of integrity. I've been traveling the world for many, many years now. I started teaching 27 years ago. 
And I've got to say that the town of Baltimore is a place of integrity. It's a place of dignity. And you all have something that you should take stock in and know you have something very special here. No, I just said that you can't learn it. Or can you? Can you actually teach integrity? Can you actually teach dignity? I come from a world in California. I grew up in, basically, in, in the Pacific Ocean, <laughs> most of the time. And living inside the ocean and living in a culture where it's all me, 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 integrity falls very short. Because part of being someone with dignity and part with integrity, it means that you also do what you say and you have respect for other people. It's not all about you. I remember two years ago, I wanted to meet with a very, very wealthy businessman in Manhattan, secular Jewish man, person who's you know running a massive firm, multiple stories in a, a skyscraper in Manhattan. I just wanted a few words with him. And so I asked him for, you know, I asked, would he give me 15 minutes of his time? And the answer was yes. And he didn't want, the, he didn't want to give me that time. But the battle between the adult in me that wants to do the right things and the child that doesn't care, the adult one. A week later, I found myself in Los Angeles, and I said to somebody, um, there's so much, a person I want to meet. He says to me, we have, if you want to meet him, we have to create an angle. I'm like, what angle? Call his secretary and ask him if he'll meet with me. He says, Rabbi, welcome to the West Coast. Here the adult lost a long time ago. We have a child and we have an adult inside of us. But can you actually teach integrity? Can you teach dignity? I would like to share with you the anatomy of dignity. I'd like to share with you the anatomy of what it means to have integrity. First of all, let's define the word integrity. It comes from the word integration. When someone believes something or someone says something, they may have integrated it into their lives, they may not have. If they have not integrated it into their lives, if they, have not pra if they do not practice what they preach, so what they lack is integrity. Integrity means that I integrate what I know with who I am. In a rhyme, if it's true, it's you. That's integrity. Can you teach that kind of integrity? And the answer is, you can. Blessed is he who speaks and creates the world. Blessed is he who says and does. Do you say and do? Blessed Blessed is he who decrees and fulfills that decree. Do you fulfill your decrees? When you say, you better do this or else that, does that actually happen? Is there gravity to your decree? I would like to teach you right now an amazing tool in how to live all the time in integrity. And what we're going to do is we're going to distinguish two very separate things. One of them is 
decisions and the other is commitments. You make decisions and those decisions lead to commitments. We're going to keep decisions over here and over here are commitments. Now, we often live in decision mode and let me tell you how decisions work. It comes from the word decide and the word decide is the root side which has to do with elimination. When it's pesticide, it eliminates pests. Homicide eliminates a person. Suicide, one eliminates oneself. Genocide is a people. The word side means to eliminate. Now, what does eliminating have to do with decisions? And the answer is that every decision you ever make is always a process of elimination. You see, you have multiple options. And each of those options is going to have a plus and a minus to it. There's going to be why yes and why not on each of those options. And what happens, and you can guarantee human behavior will always work this way, that when you have, of all your options, one of those options wins, meaning it has the most why yes and the least why nots, what will happen is you'll be in a process of elimination in your deciding, and you will remove that and remove that and remove this and remove that until you finally come up with a decision. It won. And it always works that way. For example, tonight, I happen to know that the Leo Storch lecture won for every person sitting in this room. For sure. It won. And you know it won. Why it won might be different for every single person. I mean, it could be you just... The alternative was pure boredom. <laughs> and this night might have proven to be a little more exciting. And so, here you are. Each one of us have our reasons, but you made that decision. Now, decisions are over here. What was over here, anyone remember? Commitment. Were you committed to coming tonight? Now, if your last name's Storch, I think the answer is yes. If your last name's Spetner, maybe also the case. And there's probably quite a few other last names around here where you were coming no matter what. So if it happened to have snowed tonight, you know who you are in this room. Had it been snowing, and it was like really snowing, just, you know, one of those fluke global warming snows, you know. And... <laughs> Don't raise your hands, but would you have been here or not have been here? So all of a sudden, the reasons change. We've got reasons not to come because it was snowing. It was like a blizzard. And then I sat here with only Leo Storch's progeny and, and obviously his valorous wife. That's who would have been here, perhaps. Because the difference between decision and commitment is that the underneath decisions is always reasons. That's the basis of all decisions. And when you make a decision, it obviously won the most reasons. That's how we make decisions. But once you get into that decision mode, you must move it. You must slide the decision over to a different mode, which is called commitment. Now, what's underneath commitment? I'd like to teach you all a little Spanish now. Nada. Okay? It means nothing. Everyone try the word nada. Nada. Yeah. There's nothing under there. There's nothing under there. 
I'm, when I say I'm committed, I'm saying I'm in. Everyone say the words, I'm in. I'm in. That was not everyone. Everyone say the words, I'm in, with koach. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in means I'm in no matter what. No reasons. No reasons. I'm in no matter what. No reasons. Now, for those of you who have noticed in your lives that or notice maybe with teenagers and other people in your life. Perhaps people who work for you, or perhaps it's a housekeeper, or perhaps it's your children. Perhaps it's you. That things you thought you're committed to, you're not so committed to. Meaning, you thought you were committed, but you're not so committed. Why? How do you know? How do I know that I wasn't truly committed to something? What's the answer? Is that reasons sneak in and take me down. Give you an example. Something I gave over Shabbos. By the way, I've had the most amazing tour of Baltimore. Um, Frankie's had me like a sack of potatoes over his shoulder. And he keeps bringing me to various Torah institutions. And then he just throws the sack onto the people there. And you're kind of, this is my, like the last toss right now. It's amazing, I can still speak. I'd like to share with you a conversation with my father that I had for about 20 years. I'm just going to add one little point, and that is that when my father would call me, I would always feel like a nine-year-old little boy. Got that part? Oh, just one more thing. How long do you spend on the phone with someone who makes you feel like you're nine years old? Ready? Hello? Oh, Dad. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, yeah, it's a really bad timing. Um, yeah, I can't speak right now. Yeah. I'll try to call you later. Click. Decision or commitment to my father? Decision or commitment to my father in that story? Which one? Decision. Do you see how reasons stop me? What was the reason? Makes me feel like a nine-year-old little boy. And the funny thing is, and you know, I'm all about, you know, it's wonderful. Therapy is a wonderful thing. I was sent to therapists, and I also myself worked in therapy for many years. The how many of our therapists would stamp that decision? How many of them would stamp it? Yeah, I don't know if you had a mitzvah so much, maybe a little separation between the two. Was a now, I don't know where in the Ten Commandments it says to separate yourself from your parents. Now, there's obviously three times the women than men in here, but I'd like to speak to you men for a moment. It's normal. I'm a, I'm a Jewish lecturer. I know it's always triple the women. Okay. And don't worry, it means nothing about your masculinity. Now, do you notice that sometimes, it's the nature of being married to a Jewish woman, do you notice that sometimes your wife kind of comes after you? Yeah, you notice that sometimes. And ladies, 
you're great. You don't have to pay attention in the next couple minutes, okay? Yeah, just speak amongst yourselves. You notice once in a while your wife comes after you. Okay. By the way, you should note that, um, just to let you ladies know that, the weirdest thing, but have you ever noticed that secular Jewish men like to marry Gentiles? You ever notice that? Back to the men. Now, I remember once I was surfing in Malibu, in uh, but a secret spot, like a misto spot. It's a spot that only locals go to, and it, it's not for the people who live in the valley. It's You have to know where to go. And so there I was, just me and one other guy, six to eight foot waves. It's gorgeous, beautiful. And it's just the two of us taking turns, paddling in. But after a couple times, I realized, this guy, I think he's Jewish. I think this other surfer is Jewish. So I said to that surfer, I said, I said to him, uh, you know, are you an MOT? He's like, what's an MOT? I said, a member of the tribe. <laughs> you know. And he's like, if you're asking if I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish. Okay. So then we both took a wave, got back out there, waiting for the next set. And I said to him, did you marry a Jew? And he says to me, I normally wouldn't say this in a synagogue, but he says, you know, school. But he goes, I, I got a quote. He says, hell no. <laughs> I mean, what do you have? I mean, what kind of thing to say about that? Jewish girl? He says, you think I'm going to put up with that? <laughs> now, ladies, let me just tell you something. The beauty of you being Torah wives, Torah women, is that when you go after us, it's always for Kedusha. It's always for Hashem. And you want to hear something amazing, and this is one of the proofs that we're really the chosen people were really the Amsegula, is that when a girl's totally secular, she doesn't know olive base, she's never worn a skirt in her life, she still goes after her husband, only just about stupid stuff, like random stuff. And so these secular guys are like, I don't know why I put up with that. Whereas us men, and you know who you are, you know it's our wives that are the most amazing, amazing thing that are keeping us from sin. They're the ones who are keeping us together and keeping us strong. I just want to mention that I tour a lot. It's very rare, if ever, that I get the opportunity to have my wife inside the room. So I just want to give a little shout out to the Rebbitson. Rebbitson Glazer. And on that subject, by the way, I just want to mention that when she married me, I was just like a ball of clay. When she married, who was that guy, that Gumby? Yeah. He was once a little bean ball of clay. Yeah, she married Gumby, and who you came to hear tonight is all because of her. Now, gentlemen, when the, when the old lady comes after you, yeah? that's not a reason to go to Mincha for three hours or to the bathroom for two hours, nor even a reason to fight. There is no reasons. There's no reasons. You see that even our parents, even our parents can have us in decision mode. And our spouses, 
Are we committed or in decision mode about our spouse? <laughs> yeah, good. You're all silent. It's a good question. I said the words to that woman over there, Hariat, Mikudeshously. So everyone would say, you know, everyone was like, Mikudesh, It seems like a commitment. But how many of us can turn cold because of our spouse maybe being feeling a little insecure right now and speaking to us in a difficult voice. How many of us can do it with our own children? The kids, I mean, for sure we're in commitment with our kids. Or are we? When you catch yourself, being in decision mode over things that you're really supposed to be committed to, you now have an opportunity to move it on over to commitment and just be in no matter what. Let your spouse feel safe. That you're in no matter what. There's nothing she can say that'll make you fight. Nothing that you, she can say that'll make you flight. I'm in. Everyone say the words, I'm in. I'm in. Same with our kids. I'm in. Same with our parents. I'm in. When my father calls me now, I speak to my father. And he doesn't make me feel like a nine-year-old little boy anymore. The reason why my father calls me and always wants to speak about finances is because he, he loves me. And I've learned to hear the love as opposed to the nine-year-old little, little boy. Now, when I pointed my finger at him for 20 years, where were those other three fingers pointing? Everyone say, right back at you. Right back at you. Yeah, it's true. One finger for him that he could have, you know, maybe learned a little bit about what it is to have a highly creative son. And don't speak to him always about numbers and finance and stuff. He's a creative son. Okay, that's one finger, but the three more pointing at me and me taking responsibility that I'm committed to my father, no matter what. You can teach integrity. And the way you teach integrity, one of the ways, is that we take ourselves out of the world of decision and we move it on over to commitment. And when you live in commitment mode that has no reasons anymore, what happens is you start to get what is called siyata deshmaya. Siyata deshmaya, which means divine assistance. When you live in commitment mode, you get divine assistance, meaning God favors committed people. God favors committed people. And you want to know something? It is an elixir as well to low, low blood pressure. It is an elixir to your general well-being. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when you're in no matter what, you basically put it in God's court to make it work. You get that? When you're in no matter what, when you're not dragging one foot the other way, but I'm 100% in this, whatever it is, and that I gave my word to it, 
But I said I'd do it. Omer ba'oiseh. Omer ba'oiseh. I say I do it. And once you do that, you basically tie God's hands behind his back, so to speak. He's got to make it work. And that's why you get the siyata deshmaya. And you'll see amazing things happen. I was once running a possible use seminar in New York City, and there was a participant who runs an entire experience on, on Sunday, Sunday, Sundays. And it's his uh, yeshiva thing. It's a special Sunday yeshiva. It's his job. That's what he does. So he says to me, Rabbi, I desperately need to come to the possible use seminar. I really need it. But I run this yeshiva on Sundays. And your seminar goes till Sunday afternoon, where exactly the hours, meaning it was going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday. It was exactly those hours. And I was going to fly Sunday evening back to Eretz Yisrael. Okay. So the men are at night, women's seminars by day, and the men finish on Sunday. So I, the guy says, how can I do it? So you know what I said to him? I said to him, no, I don't, by the way, don't try this at home. But I said to him, I want you to come anyway, totally committed, and Hashem will send it. Hashem's going to send it. I don't know what he's going to send, but he will send it. Because part of the siyata deshmaya you get when you're committed is that even conflicting things in your schedule will all work out. So you could like accidentally commit to two things. I Meaning you're supposed to be in Ohio on Tuesday, and you're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to be in Denver on Tuesday. Now you can't be in Ohio and Denver on the same day. But if you're really committed to both of them, you're going to get a phone call. Now I wouldn't wait to the last minute on this, but you're going to get a phone call that says, you know what, the CEO had to go to China. We've moved, we've moved the Denver meeting to the following week, and you're just like, now you might say, but I've been doing this so many years that it's just like. Okay, thank you. Great. Now, I fly to New York. I run the seminar. I have no idea who this guy is. There's 40 men in the room. I don't know which guy is the guy who runs the set, this program on Sunday. It was a phone call. I don't even know what he looks like. And I never got his name. So I'm just in the seminar, doing the seminar. And this guy came, committed to two things, completely conflicting. It's day two. The women come in, because the men, are, men were Sunday night started, the women started on Monday. Who comes in? A group of women come in, and they say, Rabbi Glazer, you think we're here for your seminar? You should know. This is a protest. Uh-huh. I'm like, a protest? <laughs> You're all enrolled. I mean, you all, you know, what is it called? You registered. And these were the women who registered. I said, what do you mean it's a protest? They said that we all got each other's numbers from your secretary. And we're making a protest. Because here in Brooklyn, women work. And we're not coming to your seminar by day. And we're making a protest that you stay and do, enough, do our seminar next week. So I was like, oh man, like, I mean, this is, how am I going to do this? So I called my wife. I said, what do you think? She says, fine, stay. So I called the airline, changed my ticket. Women's seminar is going to start. I told the women, you know, we'll start Sunday night after the men finish Sunday afternoon. As the week's going on, I suddenly realize on Thursday night, 
The men's seminar always ends with beer. How am I going to end with beer and then start the women's seminar in the evening? And then I have this genius idea. Let's switch the men tonight. And so I came in that night on Thursday night to the men. I said, I just have an important announcement to make to the group that uh, our seminar is going to start. We're not doing it on Sunday day. We're going to be doing ours on Sunday night. At which point this Hasidish man yells, Yes! And we all are like, What? And he says, Rabbi Glazer, I'm the man who you said could commit to both and you'll get Siyata Dishmaya. If you want to live with wind in your sails, if you want to live in the world of Siyata Dishmaya, if you want that kind of life, live committed. I'm in no matter what. Now Shlomo Amelech says not to give your word to something unless it's going to happen for sure. So you've got to be a little bit careful with it. You don't just give your word to anything. But once you're really in and you know you're in, you move it over there. First of all, our spouses, our marriages, we're in. Everyone say, I'm in. With our kids, I'm in. Our parents, I'm in. Davening. I don't know how often you daven, but most of us men are on the three times a day mode. Yeah. I'm in. I gave this class in a yeshiva here in, in Baltimore. These boys all decided, I asked them to decide on a subject. You know what their subject was? How can we get ourselves to wake up and come daven and learn? That was their issue. And this is what we discussed. I said, you boys came to this yeshiva called Ne'ima Satera. You came to Ne'ima Satera. But you never committed. You decided to come. You never committed. But when you're committed, you get up. When you're committed, you're up. And that's the way we work in life. Meaning, life gets easy when you're got the point? You got it? No. By the way, that was point one. One of ten. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, tonight's called The Possible You. The Possible You is a seminar I've been running for now 16 years. We're at close to 5,000 graduates. It is a seminar that is... Uh, was really started originally at Asia Torah, but it has moved its way into the Frum community like nobody's business. I'm lucky to have two people who are Bali Chuva out of a group of 40 that may come to the seminar. Um, I was actually brought in by the Belzer Rebbe, like by my collar, because so many Belzer Hasidim had done the seminar, and I get brought into the Belzer Rebbe for a half hour. He grills me on it because he'd had a lot of us tell me them do the seminar and he actually the next thing I do next thing I know I get a phone call from the from the Belzarevis Gabai that he's sending me 17 Dayanim and we had a special seminar for 17 Dayanim the possibly the seminar is an experience it's a difficult experience because part of it has to do with, with going into your stuff very deeply. Think about it right now. As you're listening to me speak, do you realize right now, as you hear me, that you're filtering out everything I say 
based on your entire life experience. How could you not? You listen based on your entire life experience. Includes where you were born, uh, your parents' culture they created in their home, your birth order, your interactions with siblings, embarrassing moments that might have taken place, all kinds of stuff that happened in the Chinook system. Your whole life experience is how you're experiencing me right now. Now, here's the interesting question. What if you had been born a hundred yards over to a totally different home? What if you had been born a hundred miles over to a totally different home? What if you had been born 5,000 miles over? How would you, really you, be hearing me right now? The same or differently? Totally differently. Which means that you're listening to me, how you're experiencing me, but not just me, how you're experiencing your spouse, how you're experiencing Torah, how you're experiencing God, experiencing avoda, her experiencing life is based on the arbitrary nature of where you grew up, sibling order, parents' culture, etc. Now we're not getting into the fact that it was a shkachal protest where you were raised, but we do know that God is an WF free will freak. God is crazy about free will. He's crazy about it. He loves it. And God is so into free will that six million of our brothers and sisters perished. You see, if any of us were God, we would have ended that war before Hitler even came to power. We would have, we would have taken away the free will. And if we could only have a uh, conversation with God, we would say, Hashem, please. Like, too much free will. God's into free will. In fact, the whole reason you're here is just for the choices you'll make. He gave you a Yetzirah so you could have reward. Think about it. No Yetzirah, no reward. You know that your Yetzirah is your best friend? It's your reward. Your whole Olam Haba will only be because of Yetzirah. If you had no Yetzirah, you'd get an Olam Haba. Hashem's very into free will. And we all think free will is like, you know, uh, milkshakes or flayshakes, or, you know, do the right thing, do the wrong thing. But there's actually other levels of free will. One of those levels of free will is who you are. <coughs> We've never normally think about that. But that's also a choice. Who are you? Now, I know if I watched a movie about your life that I would be a, and they gave me like a multiple choice from now on. I get to watch you and like choose what you, you know, what you'll probably do. How predictable would that be? And the answer is extremely predictable. Does that sound like free will? No. Did you know that the majority of entertainment is based on the fact that people will act predictably? 
What they do is every show, every sitcom, every movie, every play, throughout all of world history, what it does is it develops the child's life at the beginning of the show or the movie. And everyone in the theater is just like, there's not a dry eye in the house. You know, you're a little embarrassed because you're crying. So you like, look over, just no one should know you're crying. Guess what they're doing? They're crying. They develop the child's life. And then what do they do in every movie, in every show? is they fast-forward it to their adult life, and what do you get to watch? How they play out that same story in all their adult relationships. And even though I'm speaking to a room that's probably on the average age, somewhere between 30 and 60, is there a single adult in this room? Is there a single adult in here? And you hear how quiet it is right now. It's quiet. Like, hmm. What story am I playing out right now of my childhood? Who did I become? Not because I chose, but because I had to protect myself from something that happened to me as a child. That's not powerful. That's predictable. That's not inspiring. That's numbing. And this is why the majority of people in our country wake up to caffeine. Because what else could get us to start a day that is so predictable? And he also created alcohol to forget about it after. <laughs> Hashem holds us to stop being predictable and start being truly present and alive. To stop seeing the world through the old eyes of our story and to experience life alive and inspired that there's a choice I can make that I'm not that incapable nine-year-old boy I can actually make a choice that I am a powerful incapable man these are choices that we make, but until we make that choice, we are under the dictates of our story. Now, people sit in movie theaters. And by the way, I, I get the question sometimes from secular crowds. They're like, Rabbi, do you still see movies? Do you know what I answer them? I answer them, um, if you could show me two free hours... I would have to, then I could potentially let you know. But ever since I became observant, I have not found two free hours to know if I watch movies. I don't know if you know about this, but I think the rest of the world actually has free time. There's something bizarre about being Shomer Mitzvahs. But show me two free hours, and then we'll discuss movies. It's amazing, amazing how busy we are. And Baruch Hashem doing all the amazing stuff we do. But people in the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, 
are sitting through that movie for two hours of the most predictable scene ever. And the question is why? Why are they sitting in there? Why do they sit through that film? You don't want to take this one? Huh? We have a wire in the movie theater. What are they doing in there? Are you? Okay, let's say it like this. Why don't we watch someone else's story for a while? Meaning, I'm in my story, and can I please have a little break? And I'll just watch someone else's story for a while. And they'll watch this most predictable film. But there's another reason why they sit for all two hours. So stay for a half hour. <laughs> and then leave. Go back, to, go back to your life. Like, why do you stay for two hours? And the answer is, I'm not going to answer it immediately, is that something bothers us in there. There's something bothering us in that theater. And Hollywood's playing on this Mita of ours. Hollywood's playing on our Mita. And they're making us sit there because there's something we're waiting for. What are we waiting for in that room? What are we waiting for to happen on that screen? Happy ending. Very good. We're waiting for that person to have a breakthrough. That's why we're sitting in there. What meta are they playing on us? They're playing off the world's meta. Every human being, Jew, Gentile, everybody has this meta. And they're playing off that meta and getting us to observe this, to watch this film. What's the Mida? Midas ha. Midas ha. Midas arachni, Midas anetza. Midas ha begins with an aleph. Mem. Midas emes. They're playing off our Midas emes because you see at the beginning of the movie when they show the little girl or whatever, the little boy. And everyone, like, they just play the right music. Everyone's in love with this amazing, our little tzaddikas. Yeah. Our little tzaddikal. And then what they do is they have drama hit. Something goes wrong. And you look at the big eyes of that child. And you're watching the movie and you're just like, no. Because there's not a person in the theater who believes now that she's no good. Or that he's stupid. Or whatever it was. There's not a person in the theater who believes that. Who believes it? The child. The child believes it. And we're going to wait throughout that whole movie that she or he gets to the truth. I've been working in outreach for 27 years and I want to tell you one of my secrets to reaching out to Jews is you always hold how awesome they are. You always hold that. I hold how awesome you are. The reason why I have a magnetic personality isn't because I have a magnetic personality. The reason I have a magnetic personality is because you know when you're with me, I will always hold how amazing you are. I'll never let that go. And I, I don't care. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me about who you are. And sometimes in the seminar, people are trying to convince me of like what they went through. So therefore, they are X. And I'm trying to be compassionate when I'm listening. And I'm just like, you know, they finish what they're saying and I'm just like, yeah, yeah. So, you're, so you saw yourself as, as 
worthless. Mm -hmm. you know, Gee, that must have been very hard. And they're like, yeah, Rabbi, what am I going to do? And I'm like, stay tuned. Just stay tuned. Because in my eyes, you're awesome. Is that we hold how amazing people are. Because you really are that awesome. I want to teach you another distinction. And the distinction that I'm going to teach you is probably one of the most fun distinctions in the world. We already learned about decision versus commit. And now what we're going to learn is an amazing distinction. And it is the distinction between the conceptual and the experiential. Here we go. You ready? Conceptual, experiential. Everyone say it just to look alive. Conceptual, experiential. Now what happens is, this is the conceptual, this is the experiential, but what happens is they wind up blurring. Just like decision. We thought we made a commitment, but really what have we learned tonight? That we've been living in decision mode about our commitments. They blurred. So too, conceptual versus experiential. They blur. Let me give you a few examples. Once in a while in Yerushalayim, I'll see someone holding their, it used to be video cameras, but now it's smartphones. I'll see people walking through Yerushalayim like this. They're like, they're like, oh wow, this is going to be great. Wow, I can't wait to see this. This is going to be amazing. Oh wow, I can't wait to see this. And you just want to like slap that phone out of their hands and say, what do you want to say? Be here. You're going to miss your trip. You're going to miss your trip. Because you're conceptualizing this experience. Now, that person has a video camera in front of his face, so it's obvious. What about us? What about us? How many of us, without a video camera, are living conceptually? How many of you right now, sitting in your chair, are in the concept of the Leo Storch Memorial Lecture. In the concept of, oh, there's Rabbi Glazer. Here we are at the Rabbi Glazer Lecture in honor of Leo Storch. How many of us are in the concept of being here as opposed to really being here? So I'd like all of us to take a moment, and it'll help you kind of get into the class a bit. I'd like you to free two hands. Everyone get your two hands free. And what we're going to do is we're going to snap together at the same time when I say three. So it'll be one, two, three, snap. I want to hear a big snap all together. It'll be one, two, three, snap. You ready? One, two, three, snap. Perfect. Let's do it one more time. One, two, three, snap. And last time, one, two, three, snap. We're going to practice that a few times. And we're going to use it as an anchor to get from the conceptual to the experiential. Now, let me just give you a few more examples just so you got it clear. I had a couple in my class in the Asia Torah in, Yer in Yerushalayim. They were from Denmark, and this couple were standing outside our building after my class, and I also had a few minutes between classes, and I said to the man, I said, so uh, how long are you studying in Jerusalem? And he looks at me and he says, um, we're not studying in Jerusalem. And I was like... I touched the Jerusalem stone. And I'm like, well, where are we? 
and he says, he says, well, we have a life in Denmark. And then I touched him, and I'm like, well, who's this? <laughs> I do this all the time. I get a lot of uh, students coming to me for Shalshudas, Mir Yeshiva boys, and Brisk, all them around. So I had a Mir Yeshiva boy who'd been learning five years in the Mir, from living in Beis Yisrael over there. And he's sitting next to me, and he's a, he's a pretty big guy, and I wouldn't do this to a thin person. And a pretty big guy, and I, I said to him, so, where do you live? And he says to me, Brooklyn. <laughs> At which point, I took my fist. This is why I waited for a big guy. Took my fist right here in the meat right there. And he, and he was like, ow! And everyone at the Shabbos table was like, what was that? Now, by the way, Rabbi Heinemann, I wait till it's after says, Because you're not allowed to bruise somebody on Shabbos. So, I look at this young man and I say to him, where do you live? And he says to me, Brooklyn. I love the pee on this microphone. This is amazing. Now the guy's like, oh. my son's sitting next to him just going like, and I look at the again, and he's five years living in your environment. And where do you live? And he says, Brooklyn. Yeah, Mr. Pow. Where did it go? Pow. Whatever. It's gone. <laughs> Where did my pow go? And at this point, the guy's like, whoa. And then I finally look up and I'm like, where do you live, man? And he's like, ah. And then my son leans over to him and says, uh, you're probably learning in the mirror. He says, yeah. I said, how long? He says, five years. You're probably living in some buffer dira in basis. So like, yeah. Why don't you tell him? <laughs> and so the buffer looks over at me and he says, I'm in a buffer dira in basis. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> We've been living in the concept of everything going on outside of us. How many of us are in the concept of Kiddush? You know, you're up there, gentlemen. And of course, the, the wife's like on the other side. She's like, I don't know how they stand this. All the kids around the table just like. <laughs> you know, if you think about time, like future, present, past, like that's the future, that's the present, that's the past. It's almost like we're trying to get things that are in our future to the past. It's like kiddish is in the way of the meal. So is washing and amotzi, by the way. 
It's like we're always trying. You know, we oh, I got to deal with mincha. So I got to move. It's like mincha. I got to get mincha from my future into the past. It's like brachas are in the way of the fruit. I gotta get the brachas on this side. And we're, we're literally living everywhere but here. And when here finally happens, like here's here, and we go conceptual, and we go into the concept of it. Everyone give a double snap. One, two, three. Together, one, two, three. What's this uh, repeat snap here? It's like this. I'll do it again. One. Uh, don't snap. It's going to be one, two, three, snap. It's going to be on the number four, but I won't say four. Ready? One, two, three. Be here. There's nothing like it. It's never, ever happened before right now. And it's the only thing that's ever happened. Think about it. It's never happened before. And it's also the only thing that's ever happened. And yet our minds take us flying into the future. Often, we spoke already, the first half was about the past. Right? The story, the rerun, the gerbil wheel dictating who we are today. Protection. That's the past power over us. But even when we're now in here, we should be here, we're projecting, anticipating. Do you know what anxiety is? Anyone here ever, you know what I'm talking about? When you get anxiety over the future, worry, concern, fear. You know what that is? If we call this my elbow right here, if we call this now, and this is the future. So there's things we all got to get done. And there's a lot of stuff. Some of us have weddings, some of us are making weddings, like we also got Parnassa issue, we got all kinds of stuff we got in the future. Now this is all that ever happens here, now. That's all that ever happens. But what happens is, because of our mind constantly throwing us into the future, what happens is this that is going to also be nows, I mean there's a lot of nows coming. Now can we always deal with now? Yes or no? Yes, now you can always deal with it. I was recently in a situation where they were checking my nerves with an electrode. Thank God I didn't know what that was before they did it. Because maybe I would have thrown myself a bit into the future before I was about to get shocked by some technician. But while he was shocking me, and I was like jumping off his bed, I caught myself and I said, okay, now I can deal with this. Now I can deal with this. I, my wife and I took me for something they had to inject me with a dye. And <laughs> I didn't know that. I was like, take the pictures, but no injections, you know. Here comes the needle. And I'm like, oh, man. But while she, right when she was sticking it in, I said, now I can deal with that. Had I known about it, I would have probably been thinking about it a lot today. We project into our future. Now watch what happens. This is now. That's your future. When you project, you know what you do? You stack up all those future events right on top of yourself, right here and now. And tell me, can you deal with all the stuff coming now? Can anyone deal with what's coming now? No. And yet God in his infinite mercy only has now happen. And can you always deal with now? Yes or no? Yes, no matter what it is. 
You can always deal with now. Now's cool. We're good with now. So what happens is, we have to daven later, gentlemen. We have to daven Mari. But what we do is, we, I don't want to daven Mari. Get Mari in the past. You know, I think, gentlemen, by the way, that's why they call it Musa. Because, you know, like, you can already smell the kugel, and you, like, can taste the herring, and the schnapps. Yeah? So do you know in Canada there's this giant animal called a moose? Yeah? It's like, get that moose off. Musa. <laughs> but everyone give a snap on four. One, two, three. Musa. Musa? Carbonus? Shnei Kavosin? Tushi? And we're going to bring to Akkadus Baruch and offer them Musa, place us back in our land, Musa. That's Musa. Kiddush is in Yom Think the word ata begins with a chav. Baruch ata. Haolam we think begins with a chav. Melechawa. Meaning we're just getting the bracha out of the way. My friends, my brothers, my sisters, we've been treating the things most important to us conceptually. How many of us are living in the concept of our spouse? How many of us have long lost the experience and we are going full conception on our spouse? How many of us have gone conceptual on some of our children, if not all of them? How many of us have gone conceptual about our parents do you see how I had a concept of that sweet man who I'm going to see tomorrow? Maybe, well, 88 years old. I'm going to see him in Los Angeles tomorrow. You know, I used to fly all the way from Eretzisrol to Denver and teach. And he'd say, you're in Denver, aren't you coming over? You know, it's another couple hours on the plane. And I'd say, no, I've got to go back to the kids and fly all the way back. Was I experiencing my father or in a concept of him? Which one? I was in the concept. When I discovered the difference between experience and conceptual, my wife said that she felt married for the first time. Because I really saw her. I see my kids. I see you. This is not the concept of this moment here in the base Yaakov of Baltimore. This moment's never happened before, ever. I know this is the 46th year, but it's really just now. This is when life occurs. 
And if we can even go a little deeper, is what we talked about before, earlier, about our story. Is, isn't that a concept? Isn't that also a concept of who we are? Haven't we also conceptualized ourselves? And tell me, did we go with the broad concept or a very safe, limited concept? Which one? As safe as possible. Meaning we're also living inside a concept of ourselves. And that concept of ourselves is the safest concept of who we are. I want to just share with you one last thing about being experiential. is It's eternal. It's eternal. Tell me, when you're snapping and you're experiencing this moment in this place, is there any time passage? It's a deep question. Any time passage there? No, when you're tapped into now, like this now that keeps happening, and you're right in that spot, right in that now spot. Any time passing there? No, you want to know something amazing? That there is no time there. In other words, when we're like in the past or in the future, we're totally out of reality. Can I go this far as to say we're insane? Why? Why? Because what's the definition of insane? Out of touch with reality. What's the definition of sane? In touch with reality. What is the one thing that's 100% real? Now. That's it. It's the only thing that's 100% real. It's just right now. Everything else is a concept. Get that? And what's the one thing we usually miss? Now. What does that make us? Insane. We're all crazy. We're all basically crazy. Which is going to be rough for Rav Heinemann at the basement because now everyone who walks in can't really give Vedas. <laughs> He's going to go in there tomorrow and be like, everyone's crazy, what do you want? I got no Vedas today. In other words, what I've taught you today is sanity. What I'm giving you access to, I'm not giving it, I'm giving it, but it was there without me, believe me. It's always been there. The, but what I'm speaking about today is to give us access to reality. I mean, I think most of us would pride ourselves on having some finger on the pulse. And yet, how many of us are so far from the experience right here, right now, who I am and what I bring to this table without any of that silly story and without any of that future projection. But I'm really right here, right now, experiential. Because that is life. And you want to know something? When I said before that it's forever, that we say it every day. I don't know if you ladies say this, but we say it every day. I'll translate that. Eternal life you planted in us. What is that you that can access now? What is that? It's a very deep question I'm asking. Is that your mind? Or is that your soul? 
Mm-hmm. I'm glad you were quiet. Guess what? It's your mind. You're, sorry, did I say that? <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> One of these years I'm going to get public speaking down. Okay? <laughs> Guess what? It's your soul. Your mind has, ready for this? Your mind has no access to now. And what I've been doing, and you didn't even realize it because you think you're at a lecture, is I've been playing a trick on you this whole time. By getting you to constantly have to focus on now, that we have short-circuited the mind and got your mind to actually finally quiet. Listen how quiet. So that you can access the soul's conscious experience. The experiential. You can really only experience the experiential via the soul. Your mind always goes future past. It's always couched in concepts. But right now, we're all here together as souls. You have a mind, and you want to know something interesting about being as mindless as we all are right now? Is now you have amazing access to your mind. You ever felt sometimes like you can't even think anymore? Like you're just too tired to think? When you actually live in conscious thought, like now, meaning conscious mind, conscious um, soul, when you really live in conscious soul, your mind is now available to calculate whatever needs calculating. I mean, we sometimes marvel at what great Tamidei Chachamim had. Rabbi Kiva and the Rambam, Rashi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Akiva, did I say Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva. How did they hold all that Torah? How did they use their minds like that? And the answer was that their minds were 100% for that. Their conscious state was always the Nishama. They were always in Nishama. They were always in Nishama. Now, when we're in reality, when we're really right here, it's always been there. Think about it. Since you were a kid, you were a little kid, it was there. You might not have been aware of it. I promise you it was there. It's always there. It has always been there. It will always be there, and you never get old. You will never get old. Some of you are looking at me like, Rabbi, I'm getting old. No. Because if you're conscious right now, if you're conscious right now of this experience, and you're right here, and you're right now, there's no time passage. You'll never get old. Notice your consciousness is as fresh as the day you were born. Literally. It's as fresh as the day you were born. He planted a living soul. Sorry, he planted an eternal... He planted eternity. Chaye Olam, living eternally. Bisrichenu, inside us. That's our neshuma. It lasts forever. Now, what did we say was the one thing in the way of our soul? What's the one thing away in the way? The mind. Guess what happens as you get older and older and older and older and older and older? I bless everyone. Admei Amen. 
But when you get older and older and you actually move out of this world, what, are the, what, are the, what does the doctor say? And again, I may have asked and please, we won't be with a doctor. We'll be with our loved ones surrounding us after blessing them. But if there were a doctor in the room, what would they say about the brain? They're officially brain... The one thing that's been in the way all these years is her mind. But as long as you're conscious, you're always in eternity. And when we pass away, so the mind will certainly leave us alone. Think about it, everybody. Where's that consciousness that you have to be out here experiencing? Let's give a count of four. On four, you'll snap. One, two, three. Where is that? Where is that consciousness? Where is it? If I put you in an MRI right now, would it be there? Would your consciousness be in the MRI? Would it show up on the screen? Does the soul come up in the screen? No. No. There's no I in an MRI. There is no I in an MRI. You're going to live forever. And the only thing that takes us away from that is all the stuff we discussed. Just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.